When he was a teenager, he had resented his father's military victories. He had worried that his father would conquer so much there would be nothing left for him to conquer when he became king. Now Alexander knew the world was far bigger than he realized when he was young. There was no lack of lands to conquer. Had he not already liberated all of Greece from the Persians, then turned and conquered Persia itself, and then conquered all of Syria? Who could withstand his invincible army? Next, there was the glorious empire of ancient Egypt, with its many riches. Alexander looked forward to capturing all of its glories. But first there was the town of Tyre. Tyre was the ancient Phoenician city built on an island just off the coast of Lebanon. The Phoenicians were trading people with a great navy who traded throughout the Mediterranean world. They had been known as great traders since time immemorial. Alexander looked forward to adding the Phoenicians to his growing list of subjects. Alexander had told the Tyrians he wanted to sacrifice to the god Heracles there. They denied him such a simple request. They had thought this was a Macedonian ploy to occupy the city. Of course, they were right. The Tyrians had a strong navy, and at this point, Alexander's navy was not strong enough to defeat them. Alexander decided if his army couldn't get there by ship, they'd walk there. Alexander told his engineers to build a causeway the half-mile from the mainland out to the island city. His troops began dismantling ancient buildings from the old city of Tyre on the mainland and transporting the rocks, timber, and rubble that would be used to build his causeway. It was an enormous undertaking, building a causeway 1,000 yards through the ocean to the island where the Phoenicians had built a city they thought would be impenetrable. Soon, the shallow shoreline fell off into deeper waters, and progress on the causeway dropped to a snail's pace. Alexander had an army of 40,000 men to feed, not to mention almost half again as many camp followers that also needed to be fed. He had to set up and fund an operation to purchase and transport enough food from Syria to his camp to feed this many people. This was a huge logistical operation in itself. Yet Alexander pressed on, often going out onto the causeway and working with his men. He could not conquer most of the known world without the unfailing loyalty of his troops, and he could not have had this kind of loyalty without an amazing amount of charisma. A large part of his charisma was a result of this willingness to get in and work with his men. When in battle, Alexander led from the front, never the rear. He received many injuries, even near-fatal injuries, as he conquered the Mediterranean world and beyond. After several months, Alexander's causeway was close enough to the island to be in firing range. This meant Alexander's soldiers were the target of Tyre's arrows and other projectiles. In response, Alexander erected siege towers and lobbed his own attacks back at the walls. A sortie from Tyre's navy was destroying Alexander's towers and damaging his causeway building operations. So Alexander decided he needed a navy strong enough to pen Tyre's navy into their harbors. One advantage of commanding one of the largest empires in history is that you have resources. He left the building operations with his second-in-command and went off to find ships. Before too long, he returned with about 220 ships. As the siege towers were reconstructed and the causeway was being completed, the fighting got more and more intense. The Tyrians threw red-hot sand over the city's walls, which was blown by the wind onto the ships anchored just offshore. 
burning through the soldiers' clothing and leaving them with excruciating blistered burns. But eventually, inevitably, Alexander's troops reached the island and began battering the walls. A small breach was finally made in the south wall, and Alexander's troops attempted to enter through the breach. The Tyrians knew how much they had to lose and fought fiercely. They beat back Alexander's troops, who then retreated. Alexander took three days and constructed bridging equipment that they would be able to use to get to the breach in the wall. This time, Alexander himself led his most elite troops in the charge. They managed to get through the walls and establish themselves in the city. This allowed thousands of Alexander's troops to pour in. At the same time, other breaches were made and troops came in through other areas of the city. The Tyrians retreated to a fortress in the old area of the city, but Alexander's troops were too much for them. What happened next, sadly, is a scene that has been played out many times in the drama of human history. It had taken seven months to build the causeway out to Tyre and to sack the city. The bombardment from the city walls had been intense in the last few months. Dusting Alexander's ships with red-hot sand and leaving the men with incredibly painful burns didn't stop any ships we know of, but it undoubtedly served to piss off the Greeks and Macedonians considerably. It was these angry men who poured into Tyre that July day in 332 B.C. The fighting in the streets was most certainly fierce. When Alexander's men surrounded the Tyrian defenders in the old fortress, they didn't hold back. They attacked the cornered soldiers and slaughtered them mercilessly. There are descriptions of soldiers fighting once their bloodlust is up. This refers to a state where soldiers have begun killing and they find themselves unable or unwilling to stop slaughtering often defenseless people once their adrenaline has reached a fever pitch. Whether it was bloodlust or an order from Alexander, his troops began slaughtering the cornered Tyrians. The slaughter continued for hours. Eventually, the adrenaline wears off and slaughter turns to drudgery. They stopped killing only after they had killed 6,000 of their enemy. But even killing this many didn't slake their anger. Over the ensuing days, they crucified another 2,000 Tyrians. When that was done, they took the remaining 30,000 Tyrians prisoner and sold them into slavery. The only Tyrians spared were the king and his family and some Carthaginians who had come to Tyre and were caught there when the fighting started. Alexander was 24 years old at the time. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 8, The Hellenic Mule. When I first started reading about Alexander the Great, he seemed like a young man with too much testosterone, a large army, and a knack for battle strategy, who liked to spend as much time as he could drunk. Now that I've read more about him, I know he was a young man with too much testosterone, a large army, and a knack for battle strategy, who liked to spend as much time as he could drunk. But there's also much more to the story. To appreciate this, it helps to know just a little bit about his early years. Macedonia, a state bordering on classical Greece, had been a kingdom in the Mediterranean for a long time. As far as I know, it hadn't had an empire of particular note until Alexander's father, Philip II, came along. Philip was a warlike king with a good army and a strong desire to acquire an empire. He invaded and conquered adjacent kingdoms, 
Alexander watched as a young boy and realized this would be his legacy. He seems to have been overly ambitious, even as a child. There's a famous story that when Alexander was still a teenager, he was worried that his father was conquering too many kingdoms and there'd be no lands for him to invade when he was a king. The most famous story about young Alexander is about his horse Bucephalus. According to the story, a horse dealer offered to sell Alexander's father a magnificent horse for a large sum of money, but Philip refused when nobody could break the horse. Alexander wanted the horse, and ultimately said that he could ride the horse that his father's best horseman couldn't break, and would pay his father the horse's price if he could not. Those watching with his father laughed, but Alexander, who was perhaps twelve years old at the time, walked into the arena and spoke soothingly to the horse. Alexander had noticed what others hadn't. He turned the horse to face the sun so that it wouldn't see his shadow, which had been disturbing the horse. He also took off his cape so its flapping wouldn't bother the horse either. As Alexander spoke soothingly to the horse to calm it down, he mounted and rode it to everyone's amazement and great applause. As he dismounted the horse, Alexander named it Bucephalus. Philip reportedly said, O my son, look thee out a kingdom equal and worthy to thyself, for Macedonia is too little for thee. The story, if true, foreshadows a boy who will grow up to be a leader that will have insight beyond that of other men, and the ability to lead with a gentle hand when the situation calls for it. I think all of these turned out to be true, though Alexander lived in a martial culture, and both behaved with and valued those who acted with macho swagger, though he could be gentle when necessary. The next year, when Alexander was 13, Philip commissioned Aristotle to tutor his son. Aristotle did tutor Alexander, as well as the children of other Macedonian nobles, children who would grow up and be many of the leaders in Alexander's empire. It's impossible to know exactly what Aristotle taught young Alexander, but it's tempting to speculate. And it's interesting to consider what effect Aristotle had on the young leader. Again, at first, I thought the answer was not much. This young man was forever getting drunk and getting in bloody fights with his officers and soldiers, sometimes killing them, and at a brutality that was epitomized by his slaughter and the mass enslavement at Tyre. And you get someone who doesn't seem to have taken much at all from one of the great philosophers and thinkers. But the interesting stuff comes from the details of Alexander's amazing career as one of the greatest conquerors the world has ever known. The question of how much Alexander's thinking was influenced by Aristotle can take us far into the weeds. Examining specific questions like this is not what this podcast is about, though. Rather, we ask the question, did Alexander do anything that has helped to shape the world we live in today? And if so, does this influence specifically have anything to do with the fact that we are currently ignoring an impending catastrophic environmental collapse? In this vein, let's briefly look at Aristotle's concept of eudaimonia, and then we'll come back to this. Eudaimonia is often translated as happiness, but this is a bad translation. Perhaps good spirit or good life might be a better translation. Anyway, for Aristotle, the good life consists of living a life of virtue, wisdom, and at least sufficient prosperity to be able to enjoy the good life. Hmm. Let's see gets drunk constantly, often in fights, killing and enslaving upwards of 35,000 people when he captures a city. Well, as I say, let's come back to this. Meanwhile, we were talking about young Alexander watching his father's conquests. Philip II did not do poorly for himself. 
He inherited a country situated next to the great Greek behemoth states and a weak military. He built up his military to the point that it was local powerhouse. Toward the end of his life, Philip went to war with the Greek city-states of Athens and Thebes. The Athenian democracy was now about 170 years old. Much has been written about the decline of Greek philosophy by the end of Athenian democracy. In its heyday, around 430 BC and following, Athens boasted great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, and great Athenian playwrights such as Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes, whose plays are still widely read and performed today. As we get close to the end of Athenian democracy, however, the great schools of philosophy were in decline. Epicurus actually emerged after the Battle of Chaeronea, which we're about to cover. His philosophy is certainly more than the idea of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, as it's sometimes portrayed, and definitely deserves to be read today, but few, if any, would put it in the class of Plato and Aristotle. So now we're in the 330s BC. Philip II was feeling his oats and encroaching more and more on Athens' outer territories. The great Athenian orator, Demosthenes, gave a set of fiery speeches denouncing Philip. In fact, our word philippic, meaning a bitter attack or denunciation, comes from these speeches. Demosthenes whipped up Athenian public opinion against Philip II. Athens created an alliance with Thebes, and Athens and Thebes went to war against Macedonia. It could easily be argued that this was folly. Athens had been defeated by Sparta in the Peloponnesian War in 404 BC, and they were far weaker some 70 years later when Philip challenged them than they had been before the Peloponnesian War. Demosthenes didn't see it this way, though, and he convinced his fellow Greeks to go to war. In 338 BC, a series of victories left the way to Thebes and Athens open to the Macedonians. All that stood in their way was a massive climactic battle with the Theban and Athenian armies. Philip offered peace, but Demosthenes, in one of his fiery orations, convinced the Greeks to stand and fight. How could these upstart barbarians defeat the mighty Athenian army, especially when allied with the Theban army? This is a mistake several civilizations in decline would make in the coming millennia. The Greeks stood and fought. In the great battle at Chaeronea, the two armies came together. Philip put Alexander in charge of the wing of his army facing the Thebans. The Roman writer Plutarch reported that Alexander was the first man that charged into the Theban army's line, turning the tide of battle. It's difficult to know how much of this is exaggeration of the feats of a beloved historical figure, as often happens. But perhaps there's some truth to it. This is because it's known that Alexander often fought in the front ranks of his army and suffered several severe wounds, including at least one life-threatening wound while in the thick of his many battles. At any rate, the Macedonians were victorious at Chaeronea, and the great age of Athenian democracy was over. Athenians would now be subject to Macedonian rule until defeated by the Romans in 197 BC. Alexander won the respect of his father in the Macedonian army at the Battle of Chaeronea. This was fortunate, as his father was assassinated shortly afterward. Alexander assumed the kingship of Macedonia when he was just 20 years old. He had the strongest army in the area, next to Persia. The respect of his soldiers, an unlimited ambition, and a belief that he had been divinely chosen to rule the world. He now set his sights on Persia but there is one detail he had to take care of first. 
The Thebans made a fundamental mistake. When a rumor reached them that Alexander had been killed, they rebelled. Alexander returned and surrounded Thebes with his army, almost as many men as the total population of Thebes. It had not been a large revolt, and Alexander demanded that the Thebans turn over the two main instigators. If they did, he promised not to touch the city. The Thebans refused and vowed to fight the Macedonians who had already defeated the combined forces of Thebes and Athens. Bad choice. In the battle, 6,000 Thebans were killed. Alexander razed the city and sold everyone into slavery. Alexander could now focus on Persia. Cyrus the Great initially founded the Persian Empire somewhere around 550 B.C., for the past two centuries, it had been the great powerhouse in Middle Eastern history. One might think Alexander would be crazy to try to conquer it. The empire stretched from Ukraine to the Indus Valley and in India south to Egypt. As empires often do, however, it had overextended itself, lost much of its economic might as the cost of maintaining its extensive lands depleted its treasury and ended up with the mediocre emperor Darius II. Darius reportedly had 250,000 soldiers against Alexander's 50,000 men. This should have been an easy victory for the Persians, but Alexander set out to prove that a well-prepared, talented, and determined smaller adversary can overcome a much larger and less well-prepared foe. One thing that Alexander seemed to have going for him was a bedrock conviction that he was destined to defeat the Persians. Alexander deeply believed in the gods and believed that they had appointed him to conquer the world, or at least the world known to Alexander. Alexander was forever checking with oracles or diviners who would tell him when it was the right time to attack an enemy. Therefore, when Alexander attacked one of his enemies, he was convinced that he would win, as the gods had already foretold this victory. In battles with the Persians, Alexander used his favorite gambit of having one wing of his army fall back, thereby creating a gap in his foe's line. He'd then throw everything he had into the gap to break his enemy's line and rout his enemy. As he had at Chernia, Alexander reportedly led the charge himself, and he was successful. Darius was a poor general and strategist and lost his entire empire to Alexander, even though his army was many times larger than Alexander's. As mentioned in the opening, Alexander then conquered Syria and subdued Tyre. He next moved on to Egypt. Egypt had been a satrapy of the now-defunct Persian Empire, and it didn't take long to subdue. In fact, Alexander was mostly viewed as a liberator. Alexander loved the Egyptian culture. He particularly had an affinity for the Egyptian god Amun. After he had conquered Egypt, he journeyed to the Oracle of Amun. There he reportedly was told that he was not the son of Philip, but of the god Amun himself. By this time, Alexander, at 24 or 25 years old, had conquered most of the known world. Most of us would get pretty big heads if we had that much success that early. Alexander certainly did. And now he was told he was the son of a god? Seemed pretty reasonable to him. Since Amun was the king of the Egyptian gods, Alexander equated him with Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. He seemed to think that he was either the son of, or divinely blessed by, the god he thereafter considered Zeus Amun. Alexander went on to India and invaded to within 600 miles or so of the Indian Ocean. When he finally sat down to rule his empire, he ruled from the capital of Persia, not of Macedonia.
he adopted the eastern dress of the Persians and their customs. These included the fact that his subjects thereafter had to crawl to the king to kiss his feet when he received them. There are stories about drunken parties that would go on for days. Then, at the age of 32, Alexander was taken ill, suffered for 12 days, and died. No one knows exactly what he died of. So, getting back to the question we asked earlier, where in all this is there any indication that this drunken macho conqueror who would destroy entire cities and sell tens of thousands of their citizens into slavery had learned anything from his teacher Aristotle? Alexander was a complex figure. All of the negative reports about him are certainly true. But there was another side to him as well. He brought what we might call naturalists or scientists with him on his expeditions. They collected samples and documented the natural world in all the lands that Alexander traveled to. He remained in communication with Aristotle throughout most of his life. However, when he had his personal historian, who was Aristotle's nephew, executed, that definitely cooled his relationship with the philosopher. Some of Alexander's other positive contributions included suggesting a new strain of cattle be shipped to Macedonia from India, and a personal involvement in questions of drainage, irrigation, and reclaiming wasteland. He also explored the Indian Ocean and the Caspian Sea, just to advance his knowledge of the geography. So apart from his conquests and bravado, Alexander was certainly quite intelligent and retained the interests in the natural world that his philosopher tutor must have instilled in him as a youth. As I've already explained, however, you make it into this podcast because you've made changes that affect who we are today. In the beginning of Isaac Asimov's science fiction series, The Foundation Trilogy, the protagonist, Harry Seldon, discovers how to mathematically predict the future in a future fictional empire. For the rest of the first book, the future unravels as predicted by Hari. In the second book, however, a character known as the Mule comes along that has abilities so different from all other humans that he changes the entire course of history. I'm not sure about being able to use math to predict the future that accurately, but today we met a character in Alexander the Great that had abilities so far beyond anyone that had come before him that he changed the direction of Western history. There had been others before who conquered great empires. Genghis Khan would later conquer a larger empire than Alexander did. But I've given Alexander the title of the Hellenistic Mule not simply because he connected a large amount of territory into one rule. There was something more. Alexander was a prince born into a dynasty in which his father would bequeath him an empire and a strong army. Yet it was more than this. He was clearly a natural leader. Recall the story that as a teenager, Alexander feared there would be no more lands left for him to conquer. And still there was more. His teacher was one of the two greatest minds Western culture has ever produced. This is, of course, a subjective call, but I'd argue that Aristotle and Isaac Newton advanced Western knowledge more than anyone else. Perhaps I'm missing someone, but I can't think of who. In other words, everything came together to put the tools into a very talented young man's hands. When I first read about Alexander, he seemed like a shallow man with two great loves, conquering people and partying and getting very drunk. But he was much more than that. 
One is very tempted to assume this is the influence of Aristotle, but we'll never know for sure. Until Alexander's time, the conquered people were outgroups. They were the others. This probably doesn't sound nearly as revolutionary to us today as it should. Our enemies in World War II, the Germans and the Japanese, are among our closest allies now. Our experience has been similar after the Vietnam War. The people you fought wars against were your enemies, and if you conquered them, they were your slaves, or at least subject to you. Aristotle was credited with many quantum leaps forward in human thought, including taxonomy, ethics, logic, and much more. But he has perhaps never been acknowledged for his greatest accomplishment. That is teaching his pupil Alexander not to see people of other cultures as outgroups. This is speculation, of course, and we certainly don't want to detract from Alexander's accomplishments of incorporating the people he conquered into his empire and not simply ruling over them as a conquering people ruling over the barbarians they had conquered. He married Roxana, a Bactrian princess, the daughter of Darius III, and later another Persian woman. He encouraged his officers to marry Persian women as well. In addition to adopting customs of the places he conquered and marrying into their royal households, he spread his Greek Macedonian culture to all these lands. At 32, Alexander had no heir that would take over his empire and no succession plan. His great empire was ultimately divided and ruled by his generals. The world they created is the world we know of as the Hellenistic world, the world of late antiquity. This Hellenistic world adopted a less superstitious and more rational approach to life as a result of Alexander's conquests. Greek-influenced philosophy, literature, theater, mathematics, art, and science all crept into the culture of the Eastern Mediterranean. Athens had used the power of chaos, that is, the democratic process, to advance the culture far beyond any other culture the world had seen at the time. Alexander expanded the scope of Greek culture to an empire that spanned 3,000 miles. All across his empire, people began to adopt Plato and Aristotle's use of reason and intellect. Alexander's successors governed their sub-empires using the Greek language. Now the entire Eastern Mediterranean had a lingua franca that all educated people could converse in, as well as a common culture. By this time, shipping in the Mediterranean was advanced, and trade would have connected all parts of the empire. Athens showed us what the power of chaos can do. A city that allowed thousands of connections between well-educated men of means had revolutionized the culture of the Mediterranean. Now there was an entire Hellenistic world with a common language and a common culture. This provided historical attractors from all over the world to mix and use the power of chaos to change their world once again. Our reading this week is Alexander the Great by Philip Freeman. Enjoy. See you next week.